Revelation 20, verses 7 through 15. If you want to turn there in your Bibles or read along. It's a little hard to read along in your outline. It's, uh, there's a lot of scripture in there today, so it's a little bit smaller print. So if you want to have your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 20. Please listen carefully uh, as, again, this is the word of God. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for giving us your word and for making us your people. And as we look at this vision of conflict and judgment and the end of everything, overwhelm us as you overwhelmed John. Remind us of what this is all about. Lord, help us to see that Jesus is judge as well as Savior. Do this for each of us this morning. In the majestic name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Back in 1938, there was a DuPont scientist by the name of Roy Plunkett who'd been experimenting on developing a better coolant gas when he accidentally discovered a slippery, durable, solid substance that covered his experiment container. He gave it the name, I have to read this, tetrafluoroethylene. You know it as Teflon. A number of years followed before a French inventor developed a process to cover his wife's cooking pans with Teflon. And since that time, the product Teflon has become a household name. It's become so uh, synonymous with the capacity to keep things from sticking, the name is used as an adjective to describe some people. For example, the Gambino crime boss, John Gotti, had a knack for avoiding criminal charges, and he got the nickname Teflon Don to convey his ability to wriggle out of facing justice. However, the day finally came when the Teflon Don uh, image uh, crumbled as he entered prison uh, to, after facing racketeering charges. Justice had finally caught up with him. Had they known of this future product, I think believers living in first century Asia Minor members of those seven churches to whom Revelation is written, may have had the feeling that their oppressors 
were made of Teflon. They suffered while their oppressors went free. Economic loss, alienation from the community, and even death because of the gospel. And it didn't bring outcries uh, from the public against the government perpetrators, and it didn't bring outcries from the government against public perpetrators. Injustices against believers took place with no justice in sight. Their oppressors seemed to be made of Teflon. On the other side, however, there is one clear and final assurance found in Revelation chapter 20, our text for today, that no one wears Teflon before the judgment throne of God. No one wears Teflon before the judgment throne of God. Remember the martyrs under the throne in Revelation chapter 6? They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And subsequently, the church received assurance that every act against the people of God will be judged by our Lord. The Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Yet the picture of judgment is much larger than this. John is showing us ultimately that judgment is about the eternal justice before God and not simply addressing earthly issues that affect suffering uh, believers. And as the apostle weaves the story in Revelation of redemptive history, and he takes us through the trials of life and temporal judgments and global opposition to the gospel and the church and distinguishing marks of both believers and unbelievers until that time when Christ returns triumphantly as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then judgment begins. And here, we see it begins with the last conflict. The last conflict. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we spent an enormous amount of time uh, earlier in Revelation 19 on this. But it says, starting at verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to deliver them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verses 7 through 10 show us the defeat of Satan in the same way that the end of Revelation 19 showed the defeat of the beast and the false prophet along with their combined forces that sought to overthrow Christ's reign. And John is simply giving us two different camera angles, uh, two different sketches of the same event, the same uh, grand finale. And uh, he starts here by letting us know that there is going to be a time of unrestrained deceit. Unrestrained deceit. I think that's the first blank uh, there in your outline. 
Although having been bound for a millennium, which is the entire present age of the gospel in the church, the entire time between the first and second coming, the time comes when Satan uh, will be released. The Lord is going to release Satan from being bound, release him from his prison. And you have to understand that here God is exercising his sovereign authority in releasing Satan for the purpose of ultimately exercising final judgment on Satan and all that reject the gospel of Christ. And he says that in verse seven. He says Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive. It's one of the major attacks against the church is deception. And uh, he mentions Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. They represent the ancient enemy of Israel. The prophet Ezekiel spoke about them in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And now John is taking that Old Testament language not to identify one or two nations, but he uses these ancient adversaries uh, to refer to the entire world, vast in number, that stand in hostile uh, opposition to Christ and his church. And the four corners of the earth simply implies the universality of this opposition. Satan's deceit will reach its peak. Persecution will be unequaled uh, right before this final judgment. In his book, The City of God, uh, uh, St. Augustine wrote about this. For this persecution occurring while the final judgment is imminent shall be the last which shall be endured by the holy church throughout the world, the whole city of Christ being assailed by the whole city of the devil as each exists on earth. So he says you've, you've got the city of God and the city of man and this is their last point of conflict. For Satan, this final conflict brings absolute defeat. Absolute defeat. And as I read about that, the, the question came up, should the church live in fear of that day? Absolutely not. John pictures one giant army representing uh, the devil's horde coming against one camp and one city representing Christ and the church. And in spite of what seems to be insurmountable odds, Christ has already triumphed over Satan. That's the point being made. Remember in Revelation 19, the word, the sword came out of his mouth, which was the word of God. And we know he's already triumphed. That's the power of the cross that has defeated our enemy and will be unleashed. Look at the end of verse nine. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. There really is no great battle. There really is no uh, uh, army of the Lord fighting the army of the devil and what we would commonly think of in, in terms of conventional warfare. The Lord Jesus Christ appears, the word comes out of his mouth, and fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. Victory is assured because at the cross and because in the resurrection and because of the ascension, Christ was triumphant, Christ is triumphant, and Christ will always be triumphant. 
The mopping up will come on that great day of which John speaks. We don't need to despair when persecution arises. Our Redeemer is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has conquered. He has finished the work of redemption. He loses none that he redeems, even in the face of the worst persecution. And that's why John can write in the book of Revelation, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And John seems to expand on that statement by giving us a picture of uh, how universal is this day of judgment. Each of us, all of us will stand before God in judgment. And only those whose names are written from the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life will know joy in judgment. So what does the day of judgment pose for us? We'll spend most of our time here this morning. Turn with me to verse 11 and the last judgment. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We're going to look at this passage under three headings. And the first one is the judge. What does this teach us about the judge? We've seen a lot of judgment language throughout Revelation. There are literally dozens of passages that we've gone over uh, as we've gone through the book that dealt with judgment. Just a few of them here. Revelation 6 refers to it as the time of wrath. The great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Revelation 11 Appears several times, pictures it as the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the declaration of the third woe. A time comes when the 24 elders declare, the nations raged, but your wrath came. Directly quoting Psalm 2. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then we move to Revelation 14. The first time we saw Jesus up on a hill. And it reveals it as a time when the Lamb is revealed as the divine warrior king. And the angel makes a declaration about him there. It says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This chapter also refers to uh, judgment as a time when those who oppose Christ and his church will suffer the consequences. We see that later in Revelation 14. Another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. 
and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the, receives the mark of its name. And chapter 14 closes out with the image of a wine press being trodden from the harvest of unbelievers gathered from around the earth. And then it moves on. We get to Revelation 19. And heaven resounds with praise to the Lord in chapter 19. It begins, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. And then chapter 19 ends with the beast and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire and that continues with Satan I hear in chapter 20 being thrown into the lake of fire. And then John gives one of the most powerful and yet succinct statements in all of the scripture regarding judgment. Every word weighs upon uh, the mind with the scene of the day of judgment. And he begins with the judge on his throne. The judge on his throne. As this vision continues, he writes verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Some interpreters, particularly those in the dispensational tradition, identify this great white throne as a place where only unbelievers are judged, in distinction from the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, before which only Christians are judged. However, in that tradition, they actually identify four different judgments. Adding days of judgment doesn't fit well with John's perspective uh, on judgment. It doesn't fit well with what he writes in Revelation, that there is a solitary judgment day, and it doesn't fit well with the overall teaching of Scripture. In Romans 14, we we're told, why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Paul addresses believers in the preceding verses there, in Romans 14, but he identifies believers and unbelievers in the following verses. So it seems to mean both. Jesus taught that all men will stand before him in judgment. Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. So the great white throne demonstrates that this is a day of judgment for all people, believers and unbelievers. The great white throne is synonymous with the judgment seat of Christ and the judgment seat of God. They're all talking about the same thing, the same place. And the fact that it applies to everybody is shown by the phrase the great and the small, all people standing before his throne. And more so, John wants us to get a feel for the throne that he sees. When he can't fully describe something where he has nothing uh, earthly with which to compare it, he typically uses the adjective great. Now, does that imply it's really big? Or does it describe its distinction as the only throne of judgment? He seems to use this term throughout Revelation to convey the idea of majesty. Majesty. 
So he appears to be struck by the majestic appearance of this solitary throne before which all of humanity will stand. Before it are multitudes, and yet it is the throne that is great, not the multitudes. And then the color white points to the purity and holiness of this throne. There's no hint of injustice or ill motives or negligence or unrighteousness in the judgments exercised by this throne. And it is a throne. It is, by definition, a place of authority. The throne is introduced in Revelation chapter 1 and is repeatedly used throughout Revelation to emphasize God's authority as creator and sovereign. His throne requires justice in his righteous rule and provides sufficient power to carry it out. And it's from here that his reign is carried out. It is his place. The opening vision of heaven in Revelation chapter four, John saw one sitting on the throne. He repeats this identity of the Lord throughout the book in very typical Jewish reverence for the holy name of God. And now John sees him who is seated on it. He sits on the throne. He's not unnerved by the rebellion of the nations. God doesn't panic when you know, Satan gets Gog and Magog and shows up in vast number. Again, much of this is based on Psalm 2. And what does he say in Psalm 2? The psalmist writes of the sovereign's perception of all these nations who are coming against him in defiance. And in Psalm 2 he writes, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The divine attitude shows that he confidently rules the nations and just as confidently judges every man and woman according to his or her deeds. And it's just at this point we have to wonder, is this God the Father on the throne or is this the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer is yes. John has used this image of one sitting on the throne to refer to the Father throughout the book. And yet there's many other passages that refer to God the Father as judge and there are many passages that refer to the Lord Jesus Christ as the judge. Peter wrote, 1 Peter 1, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's what he calls living here, the time of your exile, because you're not where you belong, which is not here. James adds, James 4, there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. The Apostle Paul writes, 2 Thessalonians 1, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. And yet Jesus declares in John 5, and he, God the Father, has given him, God the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Again, Apostle Peter taught Cornelius and his household in Caesarea in Acts 10 that Jesus Christ is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Paul told the skeptics in Mars Hill, Acts 17, that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The great Dutch uh, theologian Herman Bavink 
wrote quite perceptively about this. He said, Scripture repeatedly attributes this judgment to the Father. Still, he accomplishes this work by Christ, to whom all judgment has been given, whom he has appointed as judge, and who will therefore summon all human beings before his judgment seat and judge them according to what they have done. If you think about how fitting it is that the Son of God, who became one of us, lived a sinless life, died an atoning death, rose victorious from the grave, has been proclaimed among the nations through the gospel that he is the judge. He rightly judges all of those he has redeemed, parceling out rewards according to his good pleasure, but he also rightly judges all that have rejected his atoning death and the sufficiency of his sacrifice for their sins. And as you go through this, all of this teaches us something very important about God, and that's his grandeur. John's description of our Lord on his throne can overwhelm the senses. He writes, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence Earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. As grand and massive as earth and heaven are in our eyes, they'll flee from the presence of Christ on his throne. Let that soak in for a moment. If you've ever been to the Rocky Mountains or to the Grand Canyon, you know how we marvel at the grandeur of the earth and the sky. I mean, we get out there and you look at those mountains and they're amazing. And you look at the canyon, and it's amazing. There's many places in the world you go, and it just, it's overwhelming and awesome to see creation in all of its beauty. And yeah, even the biggest and grandest things that our eyes can behold can stand before the face of God on his throne. It's pretty remarkable. You get to stand before the face of God on his throne, but the heavens and the sky flee. And there's a reason for this on the day of judgment. Creation itself is marred by the fall. When sin entered the world, it affected all of creation. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8 about creation being subjected to futility groaning and suffering the pains of childbirth while waiting for the final application of redemption to the whole creation. Peter tells us in 2 Peter, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then he summarizes the end of that same chapter. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The earth and heaven flee from God's presence and no place was found for them. You have to ask, what does all that mean? One commentator writes, therefore, before the new redeemed order can be inaugurated, God's judgment must fall on the old order. But this judgment is not one of destruction but the prelude to recreation. The end of this judgment upon the old order is not its final destruction, but the emergence of a new order. And actually, he introduces the beginning of uh, chapter 21, the very next verse after this passage with, 
Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And Dave Dorff's going to get into that, talk more about that next Sunday. So the day of judgment is the culmination of redemption, the reordering of everything in absolute submission to the creator, the endless display of the glory of God without interruption, without denigration. It is the divine, eternal recovery of everything lost and marred in the fall. And the effectiveness of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, seated on the throne, accomplishes all of this. And then with an economy of words, John offers the most sobering picture of all the dead standing before the throne, being judged out of the books open before them. So we've looked at the judge, now we need to look at the judged. We looked at the judge, now we need to look at the judged with a D on the end. Who is being judged? Well, in this text, there's different groups being judged. And the first group is the dead standing. Probably don't hear that phrase too often. We don't normally put those two words together. But John does, Revelation does. He says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. You know, we've encountered that once already when it was talking about Jesus as the lamb back in Revelation 5. Between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This earlier statement in Revelation 20, verse 5, offers us a hint of what's going on. There it says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So John pictures the resurrection of the dead, believers and unbelievers standing before the throne. It gives one the certainty that when this life is over, the physical body decays while the soul of the believer is with Christ. As Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, yes, we are of good courage, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. But it also brings the certainty that the soul of the unbeliever separated from God awaits the day of judgment. So what John sets forth is a resurrection of life for believers and a resurrection of judgment for unbelievers. And he helps us to understand how universal this judgment is by the phrase great and small. Nobody is excluded here. There are no Teflon dons on the day of judgment. And although uh, men will long for a place to hide, the omniscient Lord will gather all before his searching gaze. And this phrase, the great and small, plus the opening of the book of life for those redeemed by Christ, indicates this is a universal judgment. There no, would be no need to open the book of life if it was just for unbelievers. The great English preacher David Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it does seem to be clear that on this great day, believers and unbelievers will stand together and judgment will be pronounced out of these records. And we go on, we read verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. The sea obviously claims believers and unbelievers alike. The ancients considered it very irreverent not to be buried. So those lost at sea had been denied the dignity of burial. But ultimately the sea cannot hold the dead when God commands it uh, to bring forth its prey. And neither can death and Hades hold the dead. 
because you remember Christ is the one who's conquered death by his resurrection, told us all the way back in Revelation 1, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And so we read that death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. They have to. Christ has the keys. They're viewed with temporary powers that hold the dead until God commands the day of resurrection. So on this day, that triumphant taunt of 1 Corinthians is complete, where it says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It can't hold us. And the last thing we see about the judge is this judgment is total and final. So we've looked at the judge, we've looked at the judged, now let's look at the judgment. The judgment, go back to verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Jump down to verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, someone, anyone could say, you know, I don't believe in any such thing as a final judgment. And ultimately, that doesn't really matter whether you believe in it or not. The Bible says God's not going to ask you when you appear in front of the great white throne, do you believe this is a great white throne? You know, are you buying into all of this? You're not going to get a vote. Final judgment will come. Nobody can hide. Nobody can escape standing before the throne of him before whom earth and heaven flee. And from the time that God judged Adam and Eve for their sin in the garden, final judgment has loomed before the human race. And often God exercises temporal judgment on this earth against nations and people. And as we said before, such acts of judgment are, are supposed to awaken our conscience to understand the seriousness of treating God as unholy or as unimportant. And Jesus warned us about that in Matthew 10. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's what John is describing here. Judgment starts when the books are opened. When the books are opened, nothing is hidden. The deeds of men, whether actions, thoughts, or words, they don't escape detailed examination, and they don't escape the judgment of him sitting on the throne. Those professing to be Christians, yet in reality not really having saving faith, they're not going to be able to hide behind all their pretensions. Those who spurn the gospel time and time again are going to see the justice of God's judgment for the rejection of Christ. Every law broken, every sin committed, every failure to pursue the will of God, every defiant thought against the gospel comes to light at judgment. Now, most scholars consider this passage, uh, this phrase about the books, to be a direct allusion to the courtroom scene in Daniel chapter 7. And if you remember, we went through Daniel before we got to Revelation, so you could make these connections. In Daniel 7, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out 
from before him, a thousand thousand served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. It's a direct reference from Revelation 20 back to Daniel 7. Here we read, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. The Apostle John's not establishing a works-oriented salvation, but rather the record of men's deeds demonstrate their failure to obey the law of God and God's justice in judging them. The God that created the world also commanded obedience to his law. And as creatures, our existence relates directly to the creator's purpose, that of living totally to his glory, perfectly conforming to his will. And yet, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And these books unpack the details of thought, word, and deed, intentional and unintentional sins, sins of omission and sins of commission. Nothing is more sobering than to realize that God holds us accountable for every idle thought, every idle word, every careless deed. Hebrews 4 tells us that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And justice will be given out according to the measure of our offenses against God. A holy God who has nothing to do with sin, whose eyes are too pure to behold sin. And do we play lightly with that reality? I mean, who of us can stand before the searching gaze of an omniscient God? We're fools if we ignore the warnings of Hebrews 10, similar to Hebrews 12, which was our response of reading this morning. There's warnings for us in those two passages. In Hebrews 10, it says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the books are open, our deeds are laid bare, and we're judged. But thankfully, there's another book. Praise God, there's another book. Because if there isn't that second book, you're in big trouble. You got no hope. You got no chance. You're in hell and so am I. But there's another book. And there's another book besides the book that records our deeds. It says, another book was opened, which is the book of life. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. The only thing that stands between any of us and the lake of fire is our name written in the Lamb's book of life. In Revelation 13, John tells us the book was written before the foundation of the world and... Uh, the book of life of the lamb who was slain. 
That book alludes to two wonderful truths. First, that a name was written in it before the foundation of the world, which points to election. And election highlights the grace of God and salvation. That I didn't earn it. God knew everything that was going to happen. My name was written in that book before the foundation of the world. Second, it's the Lamb's book. It's the Lamb's book of life. It points to redemption. It highlights the gracious provision of Christ to bear God's judgment for us at the cross. And the juxtaposition of these two books, putting them side by side, one recording the deeds and it's got all the bad stuff in there, and yet the book of life that just has your name. It shows us that all men and women are in the condition of deserving wrath. Our deeds, all of them, are recorded in the books. But the book of life declares the deliverance of the redeemed even though we deserve wrath. Those redeemed by Christ die only once, physically. Those who refuse the gospel, who refuse to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, die twice, physically and spiritually. Now, I don't know all what's involved with the lake of fire, but this much I do understand of it. It's unending death and destruction away from the mercy and kindness of God. It's the intensity of divine wrath justly administered against all who refuse to trust the Lamb of God. And judgment's never an enjoyable subject. Most preachers, I'm sure there's a few exceptions, but most of us don't wake up and say, boy, I would really love to preach on judgment this week. That's what my people really need. It may actually be true what you really need, but very few people say that. But the reality is that each of us deserves the wrath of God. And only the great mercy of God shown to us in Christ's death on our behalf spares us from the wrath of God. Is your name written in one book or two books? If it's only written in one book and it records all your deeds, you have a major problem. If it's written in two books, the second one being the book of life, written before the foundation of the world, that's good news. That's very good news. That's the gospel. Remember that. Believe that. You need to pray. Thank God your name's written in the book of life. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing Jesus to us. For those of us who need a new perspective on our world, on heaven, on hell, all the big questions of life we can't answer this side of heaven, enable us to see. Help us to focus on Jesus. Help us to pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And use these visions of revelation to change us into people who trust you and who trust your word. And we ask that you would do this in us and among us in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.